Hello, everyone, and welcome to the new episode of the Women in Economics Initiative podcast, in which we cover the latest research in gender economics and inspiring career paths of female and non-binary economists. I'm Jelena, the events coordinator at the Women in Economics Initiative and your host this season. Today, I'm joined by Monika Köpel-Turina, director of Eco-Austria. Her research focuses on economic issues concerning public finance, distribution, and political economy. In this episode, we will discuss her career path, how to build a personal brand on social media, and family planning. Dear Monica, welcome to our podcast. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you as a guest, and I'm sure that your career path will be a huge source of inspiration for our audience. So let us briefly start our conversation by you introducing yourself, and then we will dive uh, deeply into what you're doing, how it all came about, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, hi again, thank you for having me. It's, it's a great honor to be part of this podcast, which I think is a major contribution to having more females in the, in the world of economics. Um, I, am, I, am, I am originally from Poland. I studied economics in Warsaw and at, uh, at the end of my studies, I received a scholarship to go to Vienna. Uh, I, I wanted to come for one year. I stayed uh, 15 years, uh, pretty much. Uh, so essentially, I did a PhD in economics in Vienna. I was working as an assistant professor in Lisbon after that. And after a few years, I came back to Austria and started working in applied research. And currently, I am a director of a research institute in economics since 2020, so for more, more, more or less two years now. Uh, in, and in this role, we essentially to applied research in economics, but it's more of a management position at this point, honestly. So it's, uh, I, I unfortunately don't have that much time to do my own research as I used to have before, but I can surely tell you a bit more about how to manage uh, research uh, and, and uh, how to uh, conduct applied projects. Amazing. The, I have invited you for this talk because I really think that your career path is super impressive and it's really personally to me, huge source of inspiration because I also come from another country. Then I came to Germany to do my master's and now PhD. And it's always inspiring to me when I see that there are more people who whose career paths go that way. So maybe we can uh, talk a bit more about um, your educational path in a sense. So how did this transition happen coming from Poland, uh, to Austria, to do your PhD. Um, of course, th- did you face any difficulties? What were most challenging things uh, f- within this transition? And maybe then we can talk a bit more about some tips for PhD students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was 22 when I moved and I, at this stage, I didn't do any Erasmus program or anything along those lines. So I just decided to go for the scholarship because it was a better scholarship than a typical Erasmus scholarship. So I just moved away from my home at the age of 22 and moved to Austria. I didn't speak German. So the first year I essentially spent... Uh, 
learning German um, and time because I was still a, still a student. I didn't face any like major issues. And then I started my PhD. I received a scholarship for a PhD and uh, probably the most, the toughest thing obviously for me was the imposter syndrome. And I can assure you that really everybody has it. So if I can say anything to young PhD students and female PhD students, like don't get bugged up by this because even if exposed to have an impressive career we've all been there and that's probably was one of my major struggles that as a maybe not less so as a female but maybe more so as an immigrant uh, in another country i i was really suffering from it and if i didn't you know understand something immediately in, in, in the in the course on on the economic dynamics i would freak out and figure that I'm the stupidest person in the room. So essentially, I think we've all been there. So that was probably at one point I was really frustrated and I, I thought about quitting, uh, which luckily I didn't do. Uh, but as I said, so like the major tip, like, yes, we are all been through this. So don't get really, uh, don't get frustrated, try to go through it and you will, you will, you will make it. So after that, I made a transition to the university and, and as a, as a bundle, essentially, of personal issues and personal circumstances, I decided to quit university. So I, I went to applied research. It had mostly to do with the fact that I, I got a child when I was on my tenure track position, and I was not really able to deliver all the tasks I would be supposed to deliver in a tenure track positions. And I, I, I thought at this point, this is really nothing for me anymore. So I went to applied research, but I, I, I did not uh, think this is a bad choice. And honestly, I think PhD students should consider this as an option always and think about it early on because um, if you go to academia, you know, in you, you hope for, you know, the best professorship in the world and a good career. Obviously we do, but most of us will not get it. That's statistics. So um, I can assure you that the career in applied research is equally satisfying and you can still do a lot of really, really interesting topics. And we do a lot of basic research as the universities do. But you have some also even some some virtues of having uh, being in a research institute compared to like the classical academia career. So don't get frustrated if this does not work for you later on, because you can still have a great career and still do a lot of very valuable research. Um, and now, as I said, coming from applied research, I've been doing this for the last seven years. And, and as, a, as a director, I, I have some more tasks, but it's still, still very interesting. And the good part is that it's still very a valuable research and a research which has a lot of real life impact. And it's really changing a lot. So we have a lot of topics I wouldn't thought immediately that they might be interesting and they turn out to be interesting. So um, I, I, I recommend to everybody to think about this as a viable career option already at the early stage so that you can essentially have your options open. Yeah, that's actually amazing. And I have to admit that you're the first guest with whom I'm talking about applied research because previously, um, yeah, this was absolutely not our topic. So in light of that, could you maybe recommend us a couple of institutes or institutions in general where students could look for those kind of positions Maybe let's start with Austria. And if you know for some other countries, I think it would be interesting to get some names such that we have those in our mind when we're looking for jobs. 
Uh, sure, you can apply with us. So <laughs> most of our staff speaks German, but that's not 100% necessarily because we also have colleagues who do a lot of basic research and we just write projects in English. So uh, um, that's, 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 that's not a problem. And in Austria and Germany, you have, you have a lot of very interesting, very reputable institutions. Our institute, uh, there is IFO, there is, uh, there is in Germany IFO, DIV in Berlin, uh, Institute für Weltwirtschaft in, in Kiel, Uwe Kern. So uh, essentially in every major city you can find an applied research institute. There are also some which focus on specific topics such as IAP, which is uh, focusing on the labor market. Um, uh, and, and I think this is equally satisfying. And eventually, in particularly in Germany, uh, since the research institutes from the Leibniz institutes, they receive a lot of basic financing from, from the state. So they have a lot of time really to do their own research and to publish uh, papers in, 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 in journals, which is also what you do at universities. So there is a, there is a benefit to that. And, uh, and a major benefit of working in an applied institution is that usually you will have a more stable career path. In academia, this is, they don't tell you this when you were a first year PhD student, but very likely you will have to move a lot in the beginning of your career. And this is particularly problematic for females because at one point you would probably like to have a family, children, and, 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 and you know, we're not getting younger. Um, so academia can be tough in this aspect. That's one of, one of the reasons why I didn't want to stay in academia was because I got a child and I figured I don't want to move around anymore. If I don't make it at this tenure track, um, which was pretty much likely the case at that point, I knew I would need to have another postdoc and it would be likely somewhere else. And having a small child, I thought I just want to settle down somewhere where I know I can stay for longer. So that was a, that was the decision variable for me. And this is what you can have if you go to applied economics research, because you will probably have just a, just an employment contract, and you will not have to move along. And 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 that's that's one of the things you should you should consider if this is an important variable variable for you. That is amazing insight. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, now that I was listening to you, when you mentioned that car your career path is stable, I was just wondering when it comes to uh, advance advancements in your career, what, so what are some starting positions, how much can you advance? So I, I assume that top position is what you have to be director of an institute, but what happens in between? Um, so I'm just curious to hear about that. Sure. Um, so, for instance, in our institute, we start uh, the first thing you could do is be a, a student assistant. So that's the PhD students are over that, but that's what we do. And uh, some of our colleagues uh, who started the student assistant stayed with us. So we have one colleague who, who, who started as a research assistant, then he became a junior researcher, and now he has a PhD in Toulouse, and he's coming back to work with us again. So uh, this is really nice. So essentially, you can start as a student assistant, and then there are junior and more senior positions. So as a junior researcher, typically you would be a pre-doc researcher. You, you can combine this with doing a PhD or, or not. Some people want to do this, some people don't. Most people actually want to, so most applied research institutes have some 
some kind of cooperations with universities where it's possible to make a PhD as well, like in EFM and München, LMU, for instance. Um, so what you do there is essentially research, right? So uh, you, you, you do exactly that what you learn when you were studying. You run regressions, you prepare data, you work a lot in Stata, in R, uh, you look at the literature and, and so on. So this is what you would be typically doing as a, as a junior researcher. Once you become a bit more senior, um, you, you start applying for projects. So you start you know, building up network of contacts to try to get contracts for, for applied projects, for instance, from the state, from ministries, from the European Commission. So once people start to know you, you get to get more tasks in this direction. And, uh, and obviously also uh, do projects which are financed by the, uh, from, from some, some kind of um, funds uh, for basic research. So this is also what we do. We don't only work uh, contracts with ministries or the European Commission. We also uh, do our own projects. So you start writing your own grants. You start uh, being the project leader once you have a PhD. So you can figure out your own topics and, and you know, try to get financing for them and start employing your own uh, student assistants and, and uh, junior colleagues. Um, and at this point, I guess you can also decide to be to go more into management. So above this point is more management. So let's you have to be honest, but it's similar at the university. So if you are a professor at the university and you decide you want to be a dean or you want to be, you know, even more prestigious positions such as a rector, then you have to be aware that this is less so being a research anymore and more being a manager. So being a very senior position at the research institute is more about management, is more about managing your younger colleagues who will do the actual research and you will essentially give feedback and try to, you know, figure out whether the topics are interesting, um, look at the general trends in economics, but the actual work would be probably done by somebody else. Um, but that's similar to university at the, at the applied research. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much what you what you can do. And I guess the next step would be to minister because that's what happened to my colleague who was a chef of EKS and he was no, I'm joking. This is a semi-joke, but not really a joke, because uh, one of our, uh, your colleagues uh, at LMU, Martin Kocha, who is Austrian, he became a director of IHS, uh, another research institute in Austria several years back, and, uh, and then he became a minister of labor, and uh, since one month also the minister of the economy, because now he received two ministries, so that's what you can also do after being a researcher. Not many of us will do that, I guess, but that's an option. Yes, but still, it's absolutely interesting option. And I think for us, it's super important to mention it because most of us are very blind when it comes to that, especially during first years of our PhD. Every, the only thing we see as our option is academia. But once we approach finishing our PhDs, we realize, okay, so the fun part about Austria is that our president has an econometrical publication and our minister of economy has two ARs. Uh, so I don't think there are many countries in the world with this kind of uh, top five uh, top five people uh, sitting in political positions. Now that explains why you're, why you're doing so well. Okay, now I get it. <laughs> That's amazing. So maybe we can uh, close this story by reflecting a bit upon your current position. So you mentioned that uh, you now have different tasks to what you have envisioned previously. So maybe you can mention some of those that are not typically connected to job of an economist. And maybe you can mention uh, the tasks that you actually enjoy doing a lot. Sure. So uh, being a director is... 
on one hand, research management, and this is like the still very interesting part. So you figure out what are the interesting topics to be researching, how to manage the project, what resources do you need, where to go with the project, uh, how to find financing. So this is a management of actual research project. That's one of the of the of the major topics. But obviously, there is a lot of general management. So as a, in this position, you're essentially a manager. So you have to, you know, hire people and sometimes fire. Unfortunately, you have to figure out uh, whether I don't know we need a new coffee machine or you need to you know sign documents and and all this kind of pretty boring stuff but that's part of being a manager everywhere so it's like running your own company so uh, you have to figure out how you're going to finance the people you employed and and, and doing this general kind of management uh, tasks which can be boring but uh, but at times it's also it's also satisfying it's, it's satisfying if you hire people I, I enjoy very much hiring people because i i really enjoy the feeling of giving you know possibilities to people and them being happy that they have found a job with us and, and we have a nice relationship. Um, then there is a lot of stakeholder contacts, so such as policymakers, politicians. So we meet regularly with ministers and, and ministries. We discuss economic issues, for instance, now in the corona and in inflation are the major topics. So we meet like every week, more or less, in, with some people from the government uh, to, to, to discuss what are the options, how we can deal with the, with the crisis. And then there is a lot of media right, work. So uh, we have to go to the media. We have to speak to journalists, uh, take part in, in discussions and, and and discuss the, 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 the policy options. So that would be pretty much the four major parts of the, of the job. I have to admit, it sounds very interesting. And especially the former part, part sounds very for fulfilling. So you know that you're helping your fellow citizens through interacting with uh, people from ministries and advising them. So I think that's... Yeah, that's really satisfying because um, in particular, as I said, we have a very nice composition of the government in which an ex-director of Research Institute and an economics professor is a minister who is really, really nice to talk to him because he really understands a lot. It's not always like this, but this is a really, really good setup. Uh, and, and we know that we make a difference and actually we know that they hear us. So I actually talked to Martin who said that he wasn't aware before he became a politician that you really take a lot of, 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 of this, of what other Economic researchers actually do. So uh, do not underestimate your role as a policy advisor because a lot of things that happen have 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 back background in the in the discussions with policy advisors. So you know that you make an impact, and this is this is a nice view. Yes, that's that's really amazing, and I fully agree with you. So one more question that popped up to my mind. Um, I think that it is very rare still to have female economists as director of prestigious economic institute. So now that you have that position, do you think that you're doing your job a bit different compared to maybe some male uh, directors that were there previously? In a sense, are you building a bit different uh, working environment, working culture, I, I'm just curious to find out something about that, if there is something. Um, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure how I compare with my, with my colleagues, but what I can tell you is that I think um, there, is a, there is some research on, on females in leadership positions, and it tends to find that they are more, more similar to average males than they are similar 
to than the average female. So uh, to be in the leadership position as a female, you tend to have certain characteristics which are not necessarily reflecting the average female population. So you have to be, I guess, more more assertive and uh, more. Um, I don't know, more risk, uh, risk loving, less risk averse. There are statistical differences in personality traits between females and males. So you need those as a director. You need to be tough sometimes, and uh, you, you obviously, you know, this is this. Uh, you need to be more risk oriented because you are having a lot of, you know, you, you are responsible for people. So you you want to have to have this responsibility. So I think this is what characterizes me as well. I'm, I I think I have kind of the personality traits which are maybe less female and more male, and that's that's what's necessary really in any kind of leadership position uh, to have this toughness and being maybe not always very nice, uh, but uh, that's that's part of the job and. Um, and um, and not everybody is is, is 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 comfortable in this position. So not not you, you don't need to, to 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 be. I know I know my, my my colleagues who said like I I never would want to be a boss, right? Like they, they would hate the feeling. So you need to have certain personality traits to be able to do this job. And uh, I think honestly that there are probably more male than female traits that you need to have. I see. I see. It would be interesting to dive into that literature and find more about that for sure. So I really enjoyed this part of our conversation, but we also promised our audience that we will talk a bit more about building your personal brand on social media. And you're really a perfect example of how to do this really professionally. So maybe we can start with a question whether you think that in current setting, it is important for young economists to build their presence on social media, especially on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, I guess it depends on what you want to do in life, really, because uh, probably if you stay in the pure academia and this is your like the only option. So I, I don't think it's good to have like only one option because you probably always need to think about alternatives. In pure academia, I don't think this is necessary, really. So, um, but if you if you really think about going to apply research, um, then probably it's important to have uh, a little bit of attention because media will find you more easily, and it will certainly help your career. That was very much the case uh, when I was when I was a, a younger researcher and then certainly the Twitter presence I didn't do LinkedIn at that point um, uh, but certainly Twitter presence was something which would draw journalists to you and helps your career uh, you should not make a mistake though that you're thinking that this is kind of the only thing you need so it always has to come with with actual you know work uh, in the background that you know what you're talking about so unfortunately people who spent a lot of time on social media at one point they they kind of only have the brand but there is nothing nothing in the background and um it will work for some time but it will not work forever so if you want to have a career you should definitely be first of all focusing on that that you know what you're talking about and you read your papers and you and you and then if you want to do applied research you probably want to have a bit of, of this media attention if you want to stay in academia i don't think it matters that much uh it's still not really a criterion for any kind of you know job openings and not not as a junior person so if you're looking to be a rector of a university then maybe perhaps it will count 
or maybe a full professorship at one point because the university starts to think a lot about uh, media attention these days. But as a junior person, you just need to write your papers and they have to have good quality. Uh, if you still have time for Twitter, it's for sure good if you want, if you think about going to flight research, but um, yeah, it depends. It depends on what your options are really. I understand. So it is crucial for us first to really build our skills and knowledge and then to be able to actually show them off through social media. Uh, but when it comes to showing your knowledge, uh, what kind of content do you think is actually valuable for a community? Because I think that if you simply reshare or repost, retweet actually is the name, if you simply retweet things that's not an original contribution and people would not actually like to follow you just because you're retweeting something. But what kind of content can you create as an economist? So the, the fun part is that really for social media, uh, really like the basic stuff is already enough in many cases because uh, journalists and the, 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 the general public does not have economic knowledge. They did not study economics. So most of the things you learn in your second or third year of studies not even a PhD studies, would be already interesting enough, right? So um, if you understand the content well. So I, I have a lot of uh, successful threads on Twitter in which I just, you know, took a, a certain market situation and I explained it from like the very, very basics economics. I will give you an example. Last week, I have I write a column for one of the major, major newspapers in Austria once a month and I was on a train and you had this similar case with a very cheap train tickets in, 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 in Germany a few days back and there were like, you know, a lot of people. So I said like, look, how does this, what does basic economics tell us? We have a lot of demand. We have just limited the price. So we have subsidized the demand. We did not do anything about the supply. This is what happens. So what are the solutions? Let me explain you to the concept of efficient rationing. Let me explain you to the concept of how price system works and why, uh, what is the second order price discrimination? Because for instance, if there is a lot of demand on the flight, then the flight uh, will uh, suit second degree price discriminate by, you know, figuring out the demand from the time of the way, where and when are you flying? Uh, we could do this with the trains or we could have an auction system in which you can sell your seat reservations for uh, traded for a different uh, uh, train. So uh, I did this in a column. So this is essentially what you will learn, like in the industrial economics course in your third grade, but journalists and general public do not know that. So it's an interesting content. And I think these are the most like successful things I posted where is kind of a spirit in which you explain in easy terms economics concepts uh, based on real life situations. So uh, like, for instance, a lot of demand and not enough supply of trains. Um, and, and, and I think this is really, really, really interesting for people. Um, you, you obviously, you get a lot of attention if you comment on political uh, issues, but I, I need you need to be careful as an economist because you don't want to become a politician. And some of colleagues, I have, some of our colleagues tend to be a very normative in their statements. As an economist, I think we always should be straightforward about whether we talk about positive or normative issues. So what is a economic analysis and what is my opinion on politics? I think we should be careful not to you know, fall too, too far away from our, uh, our economic positions. And this might, in fact, be even harmful, I guess, if you start to becoming too political in Twitter. So this is something we need to watch. Yes. 
Thank you so much for also sharing this uh, really interesting example with us, because now it really gave me another perspective uh, on how we can use social media, because for now I have mostly noticed that yeah, people simply use Twitter to communicate their research results, but mostly I would say with their colleagues, not with broader audience, but this is really a super interesting idea how we could use social media and reach out to more people. You know, that's the third mission. So this is one thing, but obviously you're also right that communicating your papers is also important within your colleagues. So uh, there is research which shows that if the paper was uh, was cited on Twitter a lot, it tends to have also more citations in, in Scopus and, and, and Google Scholar. Uh, I don't think it was about economics, it was about biology, but... Uh, I guess this is pretty much the same story. So if you are very successful in communicating your, your research results on Twitter, you would likely have a benefit also from the actual citations in the in the databases, which which which, which are relevant for your economics career. The, the, the key point is that you really need to explain things, right? So the, 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 the people need to really understand. So the most important part about communicating research is explaining things in easy terms. And that's something you can really learn. You have to, you know, figure it out and, and try to be like we talk to students who have to explain things easily in easy terms <laughs> yes that, that is a great point but now when we are exposed on social media and we're open to um, we're exposed to many people that also means that there is higher likelihood that we might receive some negative comments and that's I don't know, some random people will come across your tweet, take it out of context, and then maybe write some um, mean comments. Uh, how to protect yourself from that? Uh, because I think that mm, this is also a tricky part when it comes to social media. Well, you can't really uh, protect yourself. Uh, so uh, people will do it. Uh, you can block people. Uh, and never, ever, ever take things personally. So that's the only option you have. And avoid exposing yourself to the content. Um, so one of the mistakes I made when I was younger, uh, when I started to get this media attention and give interviews, was to look at the reactions uh, of the general public, such as uh, if there is a newspaper forum, and there is one newspaper in Austria which is very well-known, maybe, you know, if infamous for having a very uh, vivid forum which at times can be very uh, very horrible i looked at it in the beginning because i was interested what the reactions are and that was a big mistake so um don't do it and at one point i learned is that you what you should not uh, you should not do uh, do this and you should, because you will you will you know get crazy uh, seeing all the opinions of like people who have just the major, I don't know, they're anonymous on the web and they just want to, you know, do hate speech. Um, so don't expose yourself, don't proactively look for it. And if you happen to be exposed to this kind of hate content, just block, don't read it. If I get emails which for which I know from the topic already that's what the content will be, I just, I just delete the email, I just don't read it. That's why I, I self-protect myself. And this happens uh, when you talk on TV on, like, you know, issues which people do not find uh, find good then you get like emails and, and phone calls um, don't 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 proactively look for it and if it happens to, 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 to look for you unfortunately just block and, and and ignore there is no other option yes yes thank you so much for for sharing that with us maybe we can um, also talk a bit more about family planning 
um, because I think that this is a topic that's of interest to many of us. When to do it, how to do it, uh, is it feasible, and so on. So whatever you would like to share with us from your personal experience, it will be very valuable for us. Mm, sure. Um, so I guess good and the bad part about myself is that I didn't really do much of family planning. That just happened. And um, and that's a good and a bad thing. So the, 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 the bad thing is obviously that you don't have much control over that. The good thing is that, you know, once you start thinking about children, you, you figure that there is never a good time to have children. Um, so, and you will always find a, a reason for why it's not a good time now. And that's what's, what makes us delay this decision for a very long time. And, um, and in particular in academia, in which, as I said, you likely will have to move a, little, a, a, a lot, like every two to three years at the beginning of your career, and may not be able to take a partner with you. Um, so this starts to be really, really complicated. Um, that also happened to me when I got my second child. So the second child was kind of planned and that's why it also took so long because it was never a good moment. Uh, what I can tell you from Exposed is that if it happens, it happens and you just have to deal with it and you will deal with it and you will learn how to deal with it and will not hinder your career. I can assure you that uh, you will find options uh, because you know now you have a, a person to care for and uh, you just have to find a way. So that was my experience. Um, it did not, uh, it probably made it for me impossible to be able to, 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 to finish my first tenure track position. I'm really honest about it, but it did not close my options. I did a different career and I'm perfectly happy. And it influenced my decision to go to applied research because family was a part of the, for the, of the picture. Um, but I guess everybody has to decide that for, on their own. It's just my, my tip would be is that if you want to go for it, go for it. And then the solutions will find themselves. And nowadays, females get much more assistance from uh, at the universities uh, when they have children than it used to be the case. So now I think pretty much every university has the, uh, uh, has the option of, of, of stopping the, the tenure, tenure clock when you go on maternity leave, which is not the case when, when a few years back. So um, you get a childcare and, 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 and children are much more welcome also at the environment. So I remember my PhD colleague, she also even took her baby to work at times nobody would say anything it was fine so um you should use these options you should not be ashamed this is part and, and everybody will understand it and um and uh, my only task would be not postpone it forever because uh, you know <laughs> uh, you it's it's important to have i guess all of these things in life but um but there is never a good time so don't don't wait for the perfect time because i assure it will not come <laughs> That, that is a great insight. I do have one short question on that as well. So um, how important it is to have supportive partner or maybe support from your family? Very important. Very important. Yeah, that's the, the most crucial thing. So uh, I guess as a PhD student or as a junior research at university, you also travel to conferences and, and things like this. So uh, And sometimes you will have a very irregular working times and some meetings in the afternoon. So already at this stage, you need to have a support. Uh, and once you're in a more senior position and you have a lot of management tasks and I don't know, like media things, which I don't know, I was on TV on Sunday at, at 11 p.m. Three, three days ago. So if you don't have a supportive partners, you will not be able to do this. So um, 
you have to you have to be uh, you have to you have to figure this out. But the mo- very important thing is that you have to you know be explicit with your partner once you decide to have a family. That's how you're gonna you know divide those tasks so that you don't you know let it be decided by chance and you will be frustrated afterwards if things don't work. So it's really important to talk about this in advance. And uh, from the logistics perspective, uh, since 10 years pretty much now, I have a a common Google calendar uh, with my husband and every, every, absolutely everything, which is later than 5 p.m. is in the calendar so that we know uh, who is going where, some, when and why. And it includes sports and meeting friends. So this sounds horrible, but the only way to manage two jobs and two children um, outside of the regular working hours of 9 to 17, which are not necessarily always in calendar. Everything is in the calendar. And the only time I argue with my partner is if someone, some of us forgot to put something on the calendar. But <laughs> um, if you have it in calendar, then you will be able to manage the logistics. I would say that most of us actually enjoy planning and we are control, control freaks. So I think that this would actually make life easier for lots of people who are listening to us that's amazing thank you so much for being honest and for sharing this insights with us my last question for you for today is to give us your recommendation for a book podcast youtube channel really anything that inspires you and that is created by female economists well, one of my favorite books in economics is actually Esther Duflo's Poor Economics. Probably most of you know it, so that's not very, very original. But that really is one of my favorite books, and it's about female economists. So I thought I'm just going to say say this. And all of the work by Esther Duflo is just really great. So um, so I think um, that's that would be, I guess, a, I mean, still one of the few person in our our profession who made a huge career and obviously coming from public choice I, I also obviously enjoy very much everything by Eleanor Ostrom uh, who, who, who is a great economist and she was very, very long the only one who received the Nobel Prize and the first one female who received the Nobel Prize so um, yeah not very original sorry for that but Eleanor Ostrom and Esther Duflo I guess and all the works of them. I wouldn't say that it always has to be something super innovative and, and different. Uh, reminding ourselves uh, about some key books is, is super important. So, dear Monica, thank you so much for your time and for being my guest today. Um, it was really an honor to have you uh, today and to talk to you about applied research, about family planning, about social media. This is something uh, really different compared to the previous episodes I have done. So thanks a lot on behalf of the whole Women Economics Initiative. Sure. Thanks for having me again. And thanks for our audience for listening to us. Stay tuned and follow us for more content. Bye-bye. The views expressed in WE podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics Initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.